In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 17, Richard Helms, the only CIA director ever convicted of lying to Congress under oath. On September 15, 1970, Central Intelligence Agency Director Richard Helms was ushered into the Oval Office. President Nixon was seated at the large desk in the center of the room. His fist was clenched. He was not happy. But maybe Helms could fix the problem. Helms tried to keep up with the president's tirade, scribbling furiously on the notebook in his lap. Something needed to be done. Helms, of course, knew that the something Nixon referred to was stopping Salvador Allende from becoming the next president of Chile. Allende was sure to turn the country into a communist state, making yet another enemy for the United States. Just like Helms had been saying last year. Now, he suspected that it was too late, making this not only incredibly risky, but ineffective. Still, as always, he'd do his duty. Fifteen minutes later, Helms was back in his car driving to the agency. He glanced over at his notepad on the seat next to him. It read, Not concerned risks involved. No involvement of embassy. Ten million dollars available, more if necessary. Make the economy scream. Helms had just 38 days to carry out the president's commands. Overthrow Salvador Allende. Make sure he does not become inaugurated as Chile's next president. And most importantly, make sure absolutely no one knows about the plan. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll get into the drama right after this. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Richard Helms made a career out of keeping secrets. He started in 1943 at the Office of Strategic Services, a wartime intelligence group that dealt mostly with overseas espionage operations. Shortly after the end of World War II in 1947, he moved over to the newly formed CIA. The early years of Helms's career were promising. He was dedicated, good at his job, and most importantly, good at keeping secrets. By 1962, at the age of 48, Helms had one of the most senior positions in the organization, the Director of Plans. 
Director of the CIA was the next logical step. It came in 1966. But for all the apparent inevitability of his rise, Helm's final promotion was something of a novelty. He was the first career CIA agent appointed to the role. Because the agency was still relatively new, Helm was only the sixth director. The previous directors hadn't had time to rise through the ranks. They generally had political backgrounds. Not Helms. He didn't believe in politicizing the work of the CIA. His job was to gather evidence and act on the president's orders, not to influence the president's policies. In fact, the CIA should stay so far away from politics, they were virtually invisible. As Helms once put it, the only sin in espionage is getting caught. But getting caught was exactly what was likely to happen when working with President Richard Nixon, who had a knack for making secrets, but not keeping them. From the time Nixon took office in 1969, he and Helms weren't the best of friends. In his memoir, A Look Over My Shoulder, Helms describes his relationship with the president as often affable and always businesslike but notes that Nixon spared me little criticism. Nixon also avoided communicating with Helms in person. Henry Kissinger, Nixon's Secretary of State, generally acted as a go-between. Most likely, it wasn't Richard Helms in particular that Nixon disliked. It was the entire Central Intelligence Agency. Helms suggested that Nixon thought the CIA was never on the team. In other words, Nixon had his people, and CIA agents weren't amongst them. But that didn't mean he didn't need to avail himself of the CIA's services. Nixon inherited a complicated situation when he entered office in 1969. The United States was knee-deep in the Vietnam War, a polarizing conflict that left many Americans frustrated with their government. Not to mention, the U.S. was still in the middle of a little something called the Cold War. To top it all off, Nixon and his administration received word that Salvador Allende, a Marxist-leaning political leader in Chile, was running in the 1970 presidential election. In many ways, the United States looked at Allende as the next Fidel Castro, the communist leader of Cuba who seized power in 1959. Considering the U.S. had just spent several years trying to assassinate Castro, it made sense that Nixon would focus his efforts on preventing Allende from winning the presidential election. In fact, that's the precedent Lyndon B. Johnson had already set when Allende first ran back in 1964. Under Johnson's watch, the CIA provided $3 million to the Christian Democratic Party candidate running against Allende, Eduardo Frey Montalva. A year later, they provided an additional $500,000. In today's money, that means the CIA spent nearly $29 million on Chilean efforts in just two years. Helms was ready to take up the gauntlet and make similar efforts this time around as soon as Nixon gave the word. But Nixon didn't give the word. Perhaps he was distracted by all the other concerns bombarding the White House after his inauguration. Perhaps he was too suspicious of the CIA to want to delve into business with them just yet. Or perhaps he was worried about political backlash. 
Helms couldn't help but understand that much. He'd gotten the warnings himself. Senator James William Fulbright, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, summoned Helms to his office. Immediately, he made it clear that he didn't approve of any interference in Chile. Helms wasn't a temperamental man. He thanked the senator for his time and stood to leave. But Senator Fulbright had one more opinion to give. Dick, if I catch you trying to upset the Chilean election, I will get up on the Senate floor and blow the operation. If Helms understood the stakes of the Chile issue in Washington, he was also getting increasingly concerned about the stakes of intervention down in Chile. It seemed that the tides in Chile were turning even further against democracy and towards communism. The Christian Democratic Party, which the U.S. had supported back in 1964, was increasingly pushing for leftist policies. So was the Chilean Congress. Helms, analyzing his agents' reports back in D.C., started to wonder if money alone would be powerful enough to overcome those tides and keep Allende out of office, even if Nixon did start paying attention to the issue. Helms did his best to get that attention. Throughout the spring of 1969, he repeatedly made it clear that if Nixon wanted to do anything, they needed to get to work. He also suggested that this time the U.S. couldn't just offer financial assistance and expect to keep Allende out of office. If the CIA was expected to do anything about the Chilean election, Helms needed time to craft a plan of action. Still, the White House ignored his pleas. Spring slipped into summer. Helms brought up the Chilean election again, insisting that they had to act now before they missed the window of opportunity. It wasn't until March 1970, six months before the election, that Nixon's White House finally listened. They gave the go-ahead for CIA intervention in Chile, using the same tactics that had apparently worked in the 1964 election. That meant $135,000, almost $1 million today, for spoiling operations. Essentially, the CIA was instructed to stir up some trouble to hopefully cause a rift in the support for Salvador Allende. A few months later, the budget was more than doubled. It would go in parts toward posters, editorials, and pamphlets deriding Allende, just like last time. Helms was glad to have a plan, but he was also frustrated. For a year, he'd been explaining to the White House that propaganda wouldn't be enough to keep Allende out of office. This would be wasted funding, wasted effort. Still, when the president gives you instructions, you follow them. So Helms did as he was told. He printed the pamphlets. He filled the Chilean papers with anti-Allende editorials. And then... Six weeks before the September election, he had his men put together a report detailing predictions for the election. In essence, the report stated that Allende was tied for first place in popular votes. If he won, the CIA anticipated Allende would create a Chilean version of Soviet-style East European communist state within two or three years. Helms didn't really agree with his analysts. He thought it would take far less time than that. But it was too late. 
an Allende presidency was inevitable. On election day, September 4, 1970, Allende received 36.3% of the votes, followed closely by former President Jorge Alessandri with 34.9%. In such a close race, Congress had the party to decide the final outcome, but it was clear they would vote in Allende. Nixon got the news, and suddenly his apathy on the Allende issue disappeared. He was furious, and he put the blame on the CIA for not coming to him sooner. Up next, we'll discuss the aftermath of the 1970 presidential election in Chile. Now back to the story. In September 1970, Salvador Allende, a self-identifying Marxist, was on the verge of being voted into office as the next president of Chile. Allende was vocal about wanting to model his country after Fidel Castro's communist Cuba. When President Richard Nixon received a report detailing the communist state that Allende was sure to bring to Chile, he immediately tried to blame the CIA for this problem despite the fact that he'd spent the past year ignoring Richard Helms's advice on the issue. He wanted this fixed. Now. On September 12th, Helms and the rest of the 40 committee, the government group designed to oversee covert operations, met to discuss their options. There was the possibility of having the Chilean military intervene, some members suggested. Helms, staring down his colleagues, could barely hold his composure. This could have worked, months ago, when he'd asked President Nixon to think about intervention strategies. But now, it was too late. He didn't know what the right answer was, but getting the military involved wasn't it. Two days later, the 40 committee met again. This time, they authorized $250,000 for the CIA to increase their propaganda efforts, again to Helms's disgust as if propaganda had done anything so far. The following day, September 15th, Nixon requested that Helms meet him in the Oval Office. Nixon got straight to the point. He wanted Helms, and therefore the CIA, to follow through on the 40 Committee's idea. That is, to stage a military coup and overthrow Allende. Helms didn't push back despite his belief that this was a futile effort at this stage. He'd made his position clear too many times to count, but Nixon would do what Nixon wanted. So Helms just listened and took shorthand notes. Those notes have since been made public, including Nixon's request to make the Chilean economy scream. Nixon was also very clear about who could know about this operation. Only the president... Henry Kissinger and his staff, Helms, and the CIA staff directly involved. Under no circumstances was anyone else to know. So this is how it would go. The boss had made his choice. And now Helms had just 38 days until the Chilean Congress voted for the next president, who was sure to be Allende. Unless the CIA could stop it. On September 16th, Helms called a meeting with several senior members of the CIA. No one felt confident that anything could be done to prevent Allende's presidency, 
but they'd do their best to give Nixon what he wanted, a military coup. The first step was to contact all the CIA's established connections in Chile. Helms wanted to test the waters and see if anyone was already staging a revolution that the U.S. could just piggyback off of. The response wasn't promising. Chile's current president, Eduardo Frey, had no intention of taking part in a coup. Neither did the chief of staff, General René schneider Chirot. In October 1970, they found their only option, retired Chilean General Roberto Vio. He was retired because of a failed coup in 1949, which didn't make his prospects very promising to Helms and the rest of the CIA. But they were desperate. So they provided Vio and his ragtag group with some funds, $35,000, and a life insurance policy for the general and his family. That was enough to keep him plotting. Meanwhile, they found themselves another general who also promised that he could take down the Chilean government. This general looked an abundance more promising than General Vio's men, so the CIA gave him access to tear gas and submachine guns, three weapons in total. But in the end, it was General Vio who struck first. On October 22, 1970, Chilean Chief of Staff General Schneider was walking to work when a group of men ambushed him. He reached for his weapon, but the attackers were too fast. Schneider was shot and died on the operating table three days later. This was not what Helms and the CIA had been going for. It was an unplanned, ineffective murder that did nothing but set the Chilean government on high alert. And just like that, any prospects of a future attack were compromised. The second general the CIA had recruited knew it. He sent back the American weapons, all unused. Two days later, on October 24, 1970, Congress voted in Allende as president, 153 to 42. He was sworn into office on November 3, 1970. The plotting had all failed. Helm's warnings had all been for naught. But this was Nixon's administration. There were plenty of other schemes to focus on. For the CIA, that meant the war in Vietnam. There were no other attempts to lead a coup in Chile. President Nixon, meanwhile, turned his attention towards the upcoming 1972 presidential election. On June 17, 1972, around 2.30 a.m., Five men were arrested breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate complex. That morning, Helms received a phone call from his chief of security about the break-in. Helms's first question was blunt. Is there an indication that we could be involved in this? Howard Osborne responded, none whatsoever. By the time of the Monday morning staff meeting two days later, news of the break-in was everywhere. Helms again asked his people if any of them had been involved. They each assured him they were not. A little over a week later, Helm and his deputy chief were called to the White House for a meeting with John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's counsels for domestic affairs. But the White House chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, marched into their meeting and took over. He demanded to know what involvement the CIA had with the Watergate break-in. 
Helms told him that his organization was not involved. But Haldeman continued to press the matter, almost as if he wasn't listening to anything Helms was saying. And then suspicious situations started to arise. Helms' deputy was called to meet with the White House counsel. Haldeman told the deputy that the White House needed money from the CIA to pay the bail of the men arrested at the Watergate building. But one, Helms's deputy had no authority to hand over money. That was Helms's job. And two, it didn't make sense for the CIA to offer up a large sum of cash when they were trying to disprove their involvement with the scandal. Bailing out the men involved would only make the CIA seem more suspicious. What was the White House up to? Turns out, the White House was trying to get the CIA to assist in covering up the president's involvement with Watergate. When Helms refused to participate, Nixon made sure that Helms knew he chose wrong. On one of the many infamous tapes released following the fallout of the Watergate scandal, Nixon discussed Helms's unwillingness to get involved. He said, Helms would never agree to falsify cops and robbers things. He's never going to say that he participated in a cover-up. After Nixon remarkably won a second presidential term in 1972, Helms, amongst others, paid the price for his lack of cooperation. At the first cabinet meeting in his new term, Nixon asked every presidential appointee, including Helms, to hand in a letter of resignation. Basically, Nixon only wanted yes-men on his team, and the way to ensure that was to start fresh. Helms declined, and he advised his deputy not to resign either. If they did, it would politicize the CIA, something that Helms had always been adamantly against. But Nixon got his way eventually. Helms was invited to Camp David, where Nixon put things bluntly. Helms could resign or be forced out. Helms considered his options and, like any shrewd spy, started negotiating. He agreed to retire when he turned 60 in a few months, March 1973, if he could get a position as ambassador in return. The offer seemed to work. Nixon accepted. But on February 2, 1973, the White House swore in several of Nixon's new appointees, and among them was James R. Schlesinger, the new director of the CIA. Helms had just a few minutes to contain his shock, gather his things, and leave the agency building. A few days later, he ran into the White House chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and asked him what happened to the agreement between himself and Nixon. Haldeman said, Oh, I guess we forgot. Nixon did follow up on one part of his agreement with Helms. He offered him the ambassadorship to Iran. But first, Helms's appointment needed to be confirmed by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. On February 5, 1973, he met with the group in an open session. It was the first time he appeared before the committee in public, but there was no reason to be nervous. This was a routine meeting, or so it seemed. Until Senator William Fulbright started asking questions. That's the same senator who promised to blow the operation if Helms tried to get involved with Chile. 
Fulbright's main questions seemed to be about whether or not Helms felt bound to keep his oath of secrecy and loyalty to the CIA now that he was retired. Helms responded in the affirmative, unsure what game Fulbright was playing. After Helms was asked some routine questions about his time at the CIA, Senator Fulbright suggested it would be appropriate for Helms to take an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Helms, seeing no way to gracefully decline, swore the oath. Then, Senator Stuart Symington asked three pointed questions. First, did you try in the Central Intelligence Agency to overthrow the government of Chile? Helms said, no, sir. Then Symington asked, did you have any money passed to opponents of Allende? Again, Helms said, no, sir. And finally, Symington asked, so the stories you were in that war are wrong? Helms said, yes, sir. Helms attended another hearing a few days later, this time an open session in front of Senator Frank Church's Subcommittee on Multinational Corporations. He was asked again if he had any connections or knowledge about the Chile election. Again, Helms said no. He'd lied under oath to Congress multiple times. Helms knew this was a bad idea, but answering honestly would have had its pitfalls. He was quite literally sworn to secrecy regarding his time in the CIA. He'd been caught between two competing oaths. Plus, there were senators in those meetings that didn't have the authority to question the CIA. Not to mention, Nixon had told him that only a select few could know about the Chile election. So he lied. It seemed like the right decision. And it kept seeming that way, because Helm's appointment as the ambassador to Iran was confirmed. He and his wife packed their bags and left D.C. Meanwhile, many of Nixon's other staff members were caught in the Watergate crossfire. The attorney general stepped down. Haldeman and Ehrlichman resigned. Several aides and operatives were removed from office. The constant shifts in power between the spring and summer of 1973 meant that Schlesinger, the man Nixon appointed as the new director of the CIA, was promoted to the Secretary of Defense after just four months on the job. The new CIA director became William Colby, also a Nixon man. He had a similar agenda to Schlesinger shake up the agency. And one of his first demands certainly had that effect. He required any person currently or previously employed by the CIA to report on any activities that might be considered inconsistent with the agency's mission. The result? An almost 700-page document detailing 25 years of events that might be considered illegal. Today, these documents are referred to as the family jewels. And of course, they included documentation about Chile. Among that documentation was Helms's notebook, the same notebook where he copied down Nixon's demand to intervene in Chile. It's not clear why Colby had this collection of documents compiled. Even President Nixon didn't know about it. It's even less clear why he granted Senator Church complete access to whatever CIA documents he wanted, even the classified ones. But what is clear 
is that if the Senate got its hands on the family jewels, Helms was in trouble. Up next, the findings of the Church Committee. Now back to the story. On August 9, 1974, Richard Nixon resigned from office amidst talks of impeachment. To this day, he's the only president ever to do so. Meanwhile, William Colby, his CIA director, compiled a massive file on everything the CIA had done wrong over the course of the Nixon administration and the last 25 years. Richard Helms was one of the many people implicated in the collection of documents. They revealed the CIA had indeed intervened in the 1970 Chilean presidential election when Helms had promised under oath that they had not. Unfortunately for him, in December 1974, the Senate got their hands on the file and established a select committee to investigate it on January 27, 1975. The committee, formally titled the United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, would be led by Frank Church and became known as the Church Committee. On February 19th, the House followed with its own Select Committee on Intelligence Operations, led by Congressman Otis Pike. Both committees were intended to uncover illegal or inappropriate events within national agencies like the CIA and the FBI. Helms became very familiar with both of them. He spent countless weeks flying back and forth from Iran to Washington, D.C. to meet with the committees and to discuss the contents of the family jewels. The Church Committee finalized their investigation into the documents in October 1975. They concluded that the CIA acted appropriately and with proper oversight in all circumstances. Except for the 1970 election in Chile, because Richard Helms had lied about it, under oath. On September 10, 1977, a case was formally brought against Richard Helms by the Department of Justice. Along with Helms's sworn testimonies, the department also had concrete proof that Helms did have something to do with Chile personally. Those personal notes from his meeting with Nixon. Helms knew things looked bad, but as his hearing approached, he decided that he wanted to go to trial. He needed an opportunity to defend his actions. Yes, he'd lied under oath, technically illegal. But he honestly believed that his oath to the CIA overruled that. That is to say, Helms thought he, or at least the CIA, was above the law. But his lawyer advised him otherwise. This was a tricky case, and going to trial would likely mean going to prison. Plus, Helms wouldn't even have to plead guilty in a plea deal. He could plead no contest. In the eyes of the court, a no-contest plea is treated like a guilty plea, except Helms didn't have to admit his guilt. It wasn't an ideal situation, but Helms knew it was the best he could get. Helms pleaded no contest on October 31, 1977. Less than a week later on November 4th, his sentencing got off to a rough start. Judge Barrington Daniels Parker said to Helms in a courtroom full of reporters and spectators, you now stand before this court in disgrace and shame. A little harsh, but Helms was mostly expecting it. 
and he was vindicated by his own lawyer's response. Helms, quote, found himself impaled on the horns of a moral and legal dilemma when he chose to mislead Congress. It wasn't a decision he took lightly. He did not lie to protect himself. He lied to protect the CIA. Judge Parker wasn't impressed. He reminded Helms that even public officials need to obey the law. Then he turned down Helms' plea deal and instead fined him $2,000 and gave him two years in jail with a suspended sentence. Helms wasn't convicted of perjury. He was convicted of failing to testify fully and completely before Congress. Helms was officially the only CIA director to ever be convicted of misleading Congress. Loyal to the last, his lawyer tried to put a good spin on it. He told reporters, Helms will wear this conviction like a badge of honor. Helms could only hope other people would see it that way. He found out quickly. The day of his sentencing, he had a meeting with the Central Intelligence Retiree Association. When he entered the room, hundreds of guests rose with a thunderous applause. News of Helms' conviction had made the radio, and soon they were passing around a basket collecting money for his $2,000 fine. By the end of the lunch, the basket made its way to Helms. To his surprise, cash and checks were overflowing. His fellow retirees had collected far more than the amount of his fine. Helms didn't need the money, but he was delighted. To his fellow agents, both current and retired, he was a hero. He'd kept his oath to the agency, whatever the cost. They respected that. Unfortunately, as far as the general public was concerned, Helms was the man who duped Congress. The man who felt like he was above the law. And he wasn't alone in his scandal-ridden reputation. Watergate seriously damaged the reputation of intelligence collecting in the eyes of the American people. As a response, the Church Committee became a permanent establishment, now named the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. The committee's investigations led to the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in 1978. This act helps ensure that intelligence agencies are kept in check by congressional and judicial oversight. However, Helms's conviction didn't deter President Ronald Reagan from awarding him the National Security Medal in 1983. Times were changing, and the country was slowly reestablishing their faith in government agencies. Reagan presented Helms the medal for exceptionally meritorious service in intelligence at the urging of George H.W. Bush, a former intelligence member. A 1983 New York Times article called the occasion a rehabilitation from Mr. Reagan for both Mr. Helms and the intelligence community. Later that week, 10 years after being pushed out of the role of director of the CIA, Helms received a letter from President Richard Nixon. The congratulations note also read, the attempt to castrate the CIA in the mid-70s was a national tragedy. Of course, it was Nixon's orders that started this entire scandal. It's only fitting that after all the dust settled, he and Helms were reunited on the wrong side of history.
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 16, the William Blunt conspiracy, when one of Tennessee's first two senators tried to help the British take control of Florida and Louisiana. For more information on Richard Helms, amongst the many sources we used, we found his memoir, A Look Over My Shoulder, A Life in the Central Intelligence Agency, written with the help of William Hood, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. (laughs) ¶¶